The place is a dungeon in the dreaded Mamertine prison in Rome. The date is around 67 AD, Anni Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And if you had suggested then that the Lord in question was a Jew born in poverty in a small and obscure province of the Roman Empire and that the whole world's dating system would be based on his birth, they would have thought you were out of your mind, especially as the person in question was crucified by the Romans outside the city of Jerusalem some 33 years later. Despite this, the rumor perpetrated by the followers of this man, Jesus by name, that he had risen bodily from the dead and was none other than the Lord, God's Son come to earth in human flesh, began to spread. The story took hold. And the followers of the way, as they were called, began to multiply at an amazing rate throughout the Roman Empire, even in the great city of Rome itself. But now to return to our date. Some 30 years later, many of the first followers of Jesus are dead. Quite a number of them martyred for their faith. And following a disastrous fire which had consumed large parts of Rome in 64 AD, the tyrannical emperor Nero had picked on the Christians, as they were nicknamed, as scapegoats. And thousands of them had been rounded up. The fortunate ones had been killed on the spot. The less fortunate subjected to a slow and agonizing death, torn to pieces by animals in the arena, or tied to pillars, daubed with tar, and set on fire to illuminate the emperor's garden parties. And among those recently rounded up and brought to chains in Rome was the man most responsible for propagating the worship of Jesus, an ex-Pharisee named Saul, or to give him by the Greek name by which he's better known, Paul who had been born in the city of Tarsus. Now in his mid-sixties, prematurely aged by 25 years of incredible hardship, he sits in a dungeon, chained to a guard. As a Roman citizen, he has the right of trial before the emperor himself, but he knows that the verdict is already certain. He'll be found guilty, and so... Within weeks, if not days, he will be taken outside the city and another privilege of Roman citizenship, he will be beheaded. And so imagine him in his prison cell, chained to a guard on one side, picking up his pen and writing a letter, a last letter, to a younger college and protege, his son in the faith, called Timothy. It's a kind of last will and testimony that he writes, a testament. As he draws his letter to a close, he gives his final instructions to Timothy using words drawn from the law courts. I give you this solemn charge. What is this charge to Timothy? What is his advice? Is it to give up in despair? The game is up. Is it to lie low until the heat dies down? Not at all. We can summarize what he wrote in these words. Preach the word. So let's read together what he wrote. The first five verses of 2 Timothy 4. If you have a Bible, it will help to turn to it. We're going to focus on these verses and then God willing next week, 
on the next three verses. And as we've set the scene, imagine Paul writing these words. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is God's Word. Preach the Word. The word preach may imply some dry and dusty eulogy delivered from a high pulpit from within the walls of an ancient building. Maybe even this morning. But that is not what the word means. That is not the word that the writer Paul uses to describe this message that is to be communicated. When he says preach, the word, the origin of the word, is the word from a trumpet. And the word used here is that of a herald walking down the streets of a city and announcing in a loud voice a message from the king. What he says is not his own opinion, but that of the highest authority in the land. It is not a party political broadcast, which will be followed by another herald who says something completely different. No, it is the word. Now, of course, Paul is not talking about a message here from a human king, but from the one who is the king of kings, from God himself. He has just reminded Timothy, if you have your Bible open at the end of chapter 3, he's just reminded Timothy that this God has spoken through the Holy Scriptures, which are God-breathed. And he has spoken finally and fully through his Son, Jesus, who is the Word. And this Word, this message from God, is good news, or to use the technical word, it is the Gospel for all people. So this Gospel must be announced, heralded, to the world. This has been the life calling and work of the Apostle Paul himself ever since he was stopped in his tracks literally on the road to Damascus and heard the voice of the risen Jesus. Paul's already reminded Timothy of this fact in the opening part of his letter in chapter 1 and verse 11. This is the message he proclaimed. Of this gospel he says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And he says, this is the reason why I'm suffering. This is the reason why I'm in prison. Verse 12, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. That day marks the end of his earthly life. And it is almost arrived for Paul. And so he writes to Timothy to say, I'm handing on to you like a relay runner handing on the baton. You've maybe been watching as I have the European Athletics Championships. Handing on the baton to the next generation to guard the gospel, but also to hand it on to the next generation. So he charges Timothy, 
preach the word. Now look more closely with me then at just these five verses. And I want to group together three themes that we see in these verses to help us remember uh, on these verses. First of all, motivation. Why? Communication. What? Thirdly, determination. How? First of all then, motivation. Verse 1. Notice the words which precede the command to preach the word. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. He says, preach the word in view of the fact that something is going to happen in the future. And you will be accountable. Certain events will take place. What are those events? What he describes them as the appearing in kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. A day of judgment is coming. He says, of the living, those who are alive when it happens, of the dead, those who have already died. That judgment will take place, look what he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, Messiah, Savior. And this judgment, he says, will take place at the appearing of Christ Jesus. Now the word appearing here, very interesting word, the Greek word, is the word from which we derive literally our English word, epiphany. An epiphany is a revelation of the presence and glory of a supernatural being. Uh, the, if you're from a liturgical background, you'll know there's a Sunday, it's actually January the 6th each year, called Epiphany. It commemorates the occasion when the Magi, the wise men, came to visit the baby Jesus and saw his glory <clears throat> and brought their gifts. Another epiphany in the Gospels was that occasion we call the Transfiguration when three privileged disciples went upon a mountain with Jesus and his glory was revealed to them. It was an epiphany. But the epiphany that Paul mentions here is the epiphany, the final revelation, the full revelation of the incredible glory of God seen in Jesus Christ. And he says on that day, everyone who has ever lived, everyone who is still living, will see the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then his kingdom will be established forever. Now why does Paul mention this here? The appearing and kingdom of Christ Jesus. Well, obviously, simply yet powerfully, it's a reminder to Timothy to preach the word in the light of the fact this is going to happen. There's going to come a day of judgment. The word epiphany was also used in the first century of appearances of the Roman emperors who fancied themselves as supernatural beings, some of them anyway, who thought they were gods to be worshipped. And uh, if you got a notice in your town square saying there's an epiphany of Caesar Tiberius next Saturday, you would do something about it. You would smarten up the town. You would put your best clothes on. You would groom the animals. You'd make sure everything was ready for the epiphany of the Caesar. How much more ready then should Timothy be and we for the appearance of the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. So notice then, Paul's charge to Timothy and us is preach the word in view of the glorious arrival of Jesus the King. And this word that we preach, that we proclaim, is the word of King Jesus. And it calls on people everywhere to lay down their arms, accept his gracious peace terms. In another of his letters, Paul describes the Christian by a different term. He says, we are ambassadors 
for Christ. Same kind of idea. Commissioned by our king. And he writes how the king himself has made reconciliation with God possible. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 20 and 21. He writes, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now when you become a Christian, essentially what happens is that you submit to King Jesus. You recognize that you're in rebellion against him. Wittingly or unwittingly, you lay down your arms and you accept his peace terms, which he made possible through his death on the cross so that you might be reconciled to God. And then his kingdom begins in your life. And so every church that preaches the gospel extends the kingdom of God. Every person who comes to faith in Christ, every person who confesses Christ in baptism, maybe in a pool down below, says, I belong to King Jesus. And so when we pray in that prayer, our Lord taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that is a powerful motivation for preaching the word. King Jesus one day will return. I pause to ask you, have you already bowed the knee to Jesus? Is he your king? Have you acknowledged him as your king? Or are you still going your own way, living your life for yourself, living in rebellion against him? We preach in view of the appearance of Jesus the king. And secondly, notice connected with it, Jesus the judge. Again, in that same chapter in his letter to the Christians in Corinth, Paul writes, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. This should spur us on. The certainty that Christ Jesus the King will appear and you and I will stand before him in judgment. That is our motivation for preaching the word. For one day we'll either be recalled by the king or the king will come to earth and establish his kingdom. Either way, we will be judged. We are accountable. This is true of us as a church. It's true of each one of us individually. And everyone else will also stand in judgment. Your friends, your family, your work colleagues, all of them one day will stand before Jesus the judge, Jesus the king. If that's true, what should we do? We better warn them. We better give them the message. We better tell them, be reconciled to God. Are you, am I, ready for his appearing? That is our motivation, why we preach the word. And this leads to a second thing on what we're to preach. Let's focus on communication. Look again at verse 2 then. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience, careful instruction. This verse simply tells us three things. When we are to preach, what we are to preach, how we are to preach. Very simply, you can work this out for yourself, really. First of all, when we are to preach, Paul tells Timothy to be prepared in season and out of season. The football season is almost upon us. I'm a great football fan. I'm looking forward to another season. I hope my teams will do a bit better this year. And those of you who know me know which my team is, and I won't 
reiterate it because we didn't win last year, but that there's a season in the close season, you take a break from football for a period, and that's the World Cup, son, in which case it suddenly comes upon you again. But there are closed and open seasons. Uh, my son, as you know, is into hunting. There is a closed and open season for, for hunting. But there is no closed and open season for preaching the gospel. There's no period when you say, well, that's when we take a break. It's great, again, that we're doing something in the festival. We have a cafe for two weeks. You see the news in there. It's great to focus on these things. But there's a great danger sometimes in church life that we think, that's the evangelism bit. Two weeks of the year, we'll pull our finger out and really get involved, and the rest of the year we can take it easy. No, we exist to proclaim the gospel. There is no closed and open season. We're to preach the word then at all times, whatever the weather, whether it's popular, whether it's congenial, whether people want to hear it, the word be prepared may have military overtones. The idea of a soldier who is on call at any time. It's not his own convenience that's important, but that of his commanding officer. And already in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul has said, we have a commanding officer who we want to please. It also includes the idea that we're to ready in all sorts of situations to proclaim the message of, to others. Not just in formal times like this. Preaching is not limited to what we do on a Sunday morning or evening but informally, regular times, unusual times, as opportunities arise and we're given opportunities to speak in conversation with others. So Peter writes in his first letter, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, notice the words again, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Notice secondly, not just when we're to preach, but what we're to preach. A message, he says, which will do three things. It's the test of an authentic message, that it will correct, rebuke, and encourage. First of all, it's a message to the mind, to correct. Correct here is the word used of reasoning or explaining something to someone in such a way to show him or her that the position they hold is wrong. Now, it's not just to win an argument. Rather, it is to clearly and explain, uh, clearly present and explain what God has said in his word and then the Holy Spirit takes that word and convicts people of their need in fact Jesus used the same word to describe the promised Holy Spirit he said when I leave here I'll send the Holy Spirit and he will convict same word he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment John 16 verse 8 the result is not that the person says at the door to the preacher you're right and I'm wrong but rather, God is right, and I'm wrong. That is the power, and the word is preached in the power of the Spirit. So Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica, 2 Thess 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, when we arrived in the town of Thessalonica. It didn't just, wasn't just a verbal message. It came not just with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. So the preaching of the word speaks first of all to the mind, to the faculty of reason, but then it also speaks to the will. Notice the word he uses, rebuke. The word used here is a word used of stopping someone in their tracks. It's the word used on one occasion. Remember when Peter took Jesus aside, Jesus explained he was going to go to the cross and suffer and die, and it says Peter rebuked him and said, Never, Lord. Stop, don't do it, don't go there. And 
Jesus in turn turned to Peter and rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan. Mark 8, verse 33. He'd got the wrong idea. Notice this follows from the address to the mind. For as one writer puts it, to rebuke without instruction is to leave the root cause of error untouched. However, rebuking and address to the conscience and will uh, must follow if the life and behavior of the person is to change. And then a third thing follows. For note finally, we preach a message which also addresses the heart. He says, encourage. The word of God not only shows a person his or her need, but he also offers comfort and help. The word for encourage is the same root word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit, sometimes translated the comforter, the counselor, or literally, from the Greek word, the paraclete, the parakletos. It means a person who comes alongside to encourage and help you in your need. God the Holy Spirit, when the word is preached, addresses people's mind, appeals them to change direction, their will. And then when a person responds, it brings encouragement and hope and help. Notice then, the word speaks to the mind, the will, and the heart. Notice also in chapter 3 that the Holy Scriptures do exactly the same thing. But God often speaks through a human voice to convey the message. So this verse tells us when we're to preach, what we're to preach, finally how we're to preach. If I stopped here, you may think, right, I'm justified here and just going out into town and badgering everybody and whacking people with the Bible and shouting on the street corner and telling them what they need to do. Well, that might help these days, but uh, it's more than that. Look what he says. You can't barge you with insensitivity. Take it or leave it approach. Paul adds the words, with great patience and careful instruction. With great patience. William Barclay defines the word translated patience here. The spirit which never grows irritated, never grows annoyed, never grows weary, never despairs. It describes the spirit which never regards any man as hopeless and beyond salvation. The Christian patiently believes in men because he unconquerably believes in the changing power of Christ. Maybe you're a Christian and maybe you've been trying to speak to someone about your faith and to, to challenge them to follow Jesus and you've maybe been at it for years, some of you. And, and you've got pretty irritated, annoyed with them because they just won't respond. They don't get on with it. You need to persist with great patience and also with careful instruction or teaching. It takes a long time. It's worth recalling that was the practice of Paul himself. He writes to Timothy here. Timothy is in Ephesus. And if you read the book of Acts, Paul spent three whole years in that city discussing daily, debating, proclaiming the message of the Christian faith to the inhabitants. I wonder, do we have the same patience, same careful instruction? Or are we impatient with people? Is our message carelessly or thoughtlessly presented? And that kind of preaching is no easy task. As Paul goes on to remind Timothy, as he turns to a third theme in these verses, which relates to the charge to preach the word. Motivation, communication. Notice finally, determination. Look at verses 3 to 5. I'll put them on the screen. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul foresees a day, 
already beginning in which people will reject the teaching of God's word. Even though it is sound, that means health-giving, they will reject it in favor of things that they want to hear. You see, the problem with people, the problem with all of us, is a problem, a hearing problem. Paul describes it as itching ears. You have to scratch to satisfy them. People will turn away from the truth. Negatively, they'll shut their ears to the truth. So don't be dismayed when you explain the Christian faith to someone and they don't want to hear. I think Paul remembers his own experience here. You remember when Stephen, the first martyr, was, uh, was killed for his faith and the Jewish religious leaders heard him give this great testimony to Jesus and when he got to the climax, they shut their ears and yelled at the top of their voices and stoned him to death. And Paul was standing there guarding their coats while they stoned him. And maybe Paul remembers that day when he put his own hands over his ears and refused to listen. But ears are made for hearing. And so people don't become deaf to everything. Human beings are rational beings whose minds need to be stimulated and filled. So when people turn away from the truth, they always turn aside to myths, to stories that have no historical foundation, a fanciful human invention. You only need to look at the bestsellers in the bookshops today to see that kind of thing. The people are attracted by the weird and the wacky and the strange. As G.K. Chesterton once put it, when people stop believing in God, it's not that they no longer believe in anything, but rather they believe in everything. And there are always people around, myth makers, who say what their itching ears want to hear. Unfortunately, itching ears are never satisfied by anything other than the truth. As they seek more and more knowledge, Paul puts it earlier in the letter, they're always learning, never able to come to acknowledge the truth. So they turn aside from the truth which would give them life, turn aside to myths which never satisfy. Now Paul anticipates that such things and people will become widespread. It appears there were already people in the churches in his day who were turning aside from the gospel and turning aside to strange myths and things. What will Timothy do in such a situation? Especially when it's so unpopular to be a Christian in his day. You're likely to be thrown to the lions or set on fire or whatever. Will he give up in despair? It's interesting in my new ministry sharing about preaching with people. There are many people who say, oh, preaching is outmoded. I'm not talking about the method. I'm talking about the fact that there is a message to be communicated. We, we don't need that anymore. It's not popular. But how needed it is today. And the great temptation for all of us is to retreat behind the barricades into our ghettos to await the return of Christ. But Paul tells Timothy, we cannot, we must not do that. Instead, being forewarned, he gives the answer to the problem. He tells Timothy and us, first of all, he says, keep calm. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. The word keep your head is literally stay sober. Don't be intoxicated by all the latest trends that come along in the church. I've been around as a Christian long enough to have seen all these interesting things that come and everybody says, this is the thing. Promise revivals. Goodness knows what it might be. New messages from God. New means of hearing God's voice. We need to be open, but we need to be discerning. We need to keep calm. Otherwise, as one leader put it, if we keep going with every trend that happens, our people in church will get spiritual whiplash. 
Now, such a stand will not be popular, as Paul proved. It leads to hardship, which must be endured. However, it's not just enough to react to suffering. We must be proactive. So he says, keep proclaiming. Do the work of an evangelist. Timothy is to do the work of an evangelist. This may refer to the specific gift of an evangelist, which Paul mentions in his letters. More likely, it's in keeping with the theme of this letter, of this section. It's another way of saying, keep on preaching the word. And he concludes this by broadening it out to include all the duties of Timothy's ministry. Pastor, teacher, evangelist, minister of Christ, keep working. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Whatever God has called him to do and equipped him to do, he must do it faithfully. Paul has done it faithfully all those years since he was commissioned by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now his duty is almost discharged, as he writes in the following verses, which we'll look at next week, God willing. Now it's up to Timothy and his generation to take up the baton handed on by Paul and to preach the word. This is a challenge to us, I believe, still in our day preach the word it's particularly relevant it's good that John and Rachel are here and I know that's their calling and commission to go and preach God's word done it on a barge and now they're going to do it in Hong Kong but all of us have a responsibility this needs to be our goal as a church let me say something in conclusion almost finished I've just finished reading uh, Wolf Hall it's a historical novel it won the Man Booker Prize in 2009 by Hilary Mantel it's the historical account of the turbulent times of Henry VIII during that period when he sought to get rid of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn. And his marriage to her, his break from the Pope and from the church in Rome. And it focuses on one key character, Thomas Cromwell, who came from a very poor background and rose to become the greatest man in the land and Henry VIII's uh, most trusted advisor. It's a great book to read if you want a good book to read when you're on holiday. It's only 650 pages. should take you a couple of days if you read fast. Uh, but anyway, uh, when I read it, it was a bit frustrating because after 650 pages, it ended with the execution of Sir Thomas More uh, on July the 6th, 1535. And when a book finishes like that, which is based on history, I start scratching my head and thinking, now, I know I studied this at history at school. What happened after that? And so it sent me back to the history books and the internet, of course, which is a great asset these days. And I discovered, as I remembered, that most of the main characters, including Anne Boleyn, Thomas Cromwell himself, Archbishop Cramner, nearly all of them were executed at some point in the next few years. So when you read a letter like 2 Timothy 4... What you want to ask yourself, when Paul wrote this last letter, it's the last thing we know he wrote. And if you read right through the Bible, you'll not find anything in the book of Acts, for example, that tells you what happened next, because it ends with Paul in Rome awaiting trial, probably before this imprisonment. Uh, so what happened next? Well, we can't be absolutely certain, but almost certainly what Paul expected happened. There's strong historical evidence from records outside the Bible uh, that Paul appeared before the Emperor Nero, was found guilty, and he was taken to a selected spot where citizens were executed about three miles outside Rome on the Ostian Way, and his head was chopped off. We can be certain what happened to Nero, the emperor who was responsible. Just a year later, after these events or so, a year or so later after these events, uh, the tide of popular opinion 
began to run against Nero. He ran for his life and in a very gruesome way committed suicide. What would surprise anyone, however, who lived in the first century is their respective reputations in the 21st century. Nero was a prolific author. He wrote loads and loads of stuff. Not one thing he wrote has survived. The letters of Paul, including to Timothy, have not only survived, but they've been read and studied by millions and millions of people and translated into 2,000 different languages. Indeed, as one writer put it, the time has come when people call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. Now, if you had been a betting man or woman, which I hope you aren't, when Paul wrote this last letter to Timothy, you would have been given extremely long odds on the church of Jesus Christ surviving beyond the next decade or two at most. Yet today, the world's dating system is based on the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And he's worshipped by countless millions of people in every nation on earth. So why did it happen that way? Well, very simply, because when Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy got the letter, and he did what Paul told him. He took up the baton from Paul's hand, as he had urged him in his letter, and handed it on to others. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, good words to remember. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. From Paul, the baton to Timothy, who hands it on to reliable witnesses, who hand it on to other people, down the generations, down the centuries, and that's why Charlotte Chapel is here today, why the churches are in Scotland today, why Jesus is worshipped throughout the world today, because people responded to the challenge to preach the word. Now the question is for us, in our generation is, as the baton is handed on to us by the older members of Charlotte Chapel to the younger generation, are we going to pick up the baton or are we going to drop it? Because there are parts of the world where there is no witness where at one time there was. Because people didn't pick up the baton and run with the gospel. The challenge to each one of us and to this church and every gospel church is not to drop the baton, but to take it up. And the challenge is to preach the word. May God help us to do that.